morning and welcome to Miami Valley Church. My name is Pastor Jed, and if this is your first time joining us, I want to say welcome. I hope that you are experiencing community in a house church as we go through God's Word together. If you're just joining us, you can go to our YouTube page, Miami Valley Church, and catch up as we've been going through all of God's Word. And right here, we find ourselves right here in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. And so before we get into today's teaching, I just want to pray, uh, pray or praise, just praising uh, God for who He is and just praying for our hearts to be open as we enter into His Word today. And so let me just pray for us uh, before we start. Almighty, uh, most holy, blessed are you, Lord our God, creator, uh, the very one who, who created, the very one who, who gave us breath, the very one who gave us this day, uh, the one who uh, holds uh, the glory and honor and power. God, you are worthy of it all. You are most worthy to be praised. You are uh, holy and set apart, God. There's no one like you. Nothing compares to you. And Lord, nothing catches you off guard. You knew every uh, thing that would happen. God, you know every single detail. Nothing catches you by surprise, God. There's not one event that has happened this very day that you didn't know about. God, you knew exactly where we would be at this moment right now. And so, Lord, I just pray as we hear your word today, God, as we engage with your word, uh, may our hearts be open. God, may uh, we allow that word in and may we be people who not only hear it, God, but that we would be obedient to the things that you are calling us to do. God, that as you reveal yourself, as you show us about who you are, how holy you are, how much you love us. God, may we see that today. And God, as you not only show us how holy you are, but you show us how, as, as your people, we are to be holy. We are to be set apart. God, may that do something inside of us today, and may we walk in obedience to that. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when someone was able to identify what you did for a living simply by the way you were dressed? Say, sure, I'm a police officer. People know what I do for a living. They might not know your name, but they know you're a police officer, a firefighter. Maybe you're at a ball game and you see a referee or a team member with a jersey on and you know what they do. It's happened to me on a couple of occasions, and the first time it ever happened to me, I was a bit uh, freaked out. I was invited by a couple to do a wedding ceremony, their wedding ceremony to officiate, and their ceremony was going to be fancier than any wedding I'd ever done, and it was going to be at a venue that was fancier than any place I'd ever officiated a wedding ceremony. And it got to that time in our counseling sessions where they said, hey, Pastor, what, what are you going to wear? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. And I could tell they wanted to ask me something, but they didn't quite know how to ask. And it finally came out that the bride-to-be said, do you have one of those, one of those preacher robes? And I'm like, yeah, I've got a preacher robe. What color is it? I said, it's, it's black. She said, perfect. Would you wear your black preacher robe? I said, sure, no problem. So day of the wedding finally arrives and I show up at the venue and uh, I get out of my truck and I put my black preacher robe on and I start walking into the venue and they have a day of coordinator that I'd never met before. And all of a sudden this lady that I'd never seen walks up to me and she simply says, Reverend Cox. And I must have this shocked look on my face. I'm like, uh, yes. And she's like, I don't worry. The robe gave you away. Nobody else here in a robe, and so it was just this moment where I, I, I was known 
by the clothes that I was wearing and what I did. Maybe you've never had that experience, but I would imagine you've had the experience where you've identified other people by the clothes that they were wearing and you knew what they did. Maybe you were traveling and you were sitting at a, after a long delay at the airport at your gate in the terminal and the plane was outside the window, it was parked at the gate, the flight attendants were all there and you knew what they were there to do, you had identified them, but the announcement says there were no pilots and you start scanning the terminal, don't you? And you're looking, what are you looking for? You're looking for the dark pants, the white shirt, the cap, and they're pulling that, that little suitcase behind them and all of a sudden you see them coming down the terminal and you get excited, but then they pass your gate and they're not your pilots, but, but you know what I'm talking about. Why don't I want you to think about that? Because we are in this journey with the children of Israel. God's rescued them and delivered them from the land of slavery. He's taking them to the land of promise. And he has them camped out at a tent. And he's, he's established this holy, this, this holy tent for them, this tabernacle. And up to this point in that we've looked, and by the way, if this is your first Sunday, we want to welcome you and invite you to get on our YouTube channel, Miami Valley Church, and you can catch up as we go through it all. But we're at the, we're at the holy tent and we've, we've looked at the framework. We've said this, 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 facility. It's, it's on a campus. It's, a hundred, it's 50 feet wide. It's 150 feet long. It's got one entrance on the east side and the tent itself. It's, it's uh, 15 feet wide and it's 45 feet long and it's divided into two. One room that's 15 by 30, one room that's 15 by 15. We've looked at the curtains and we've looked at the framework. We've looked at the furniture. We've seen this table. We've seen this lampstand. We've seen this holy box. We've even talked a little bit about the fragrances, the incense that's burning. Today, I want to talk about the fashion. I want to talk about the fashion at the tabernacle. If you have a Bible, if you have a mobile device, I'd encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, with an opening for the head and its center. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around the opening, so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate between the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it, attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead and he will bear the guilt involved of the, in the sacred gifts of the Israelites consecrate. Whatever the gifts may be, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be a work of an embroiderer. Make the tunic, sashes, and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Make the linen undergarments as a covering for the bodies, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you're like, hey, Tim, thanks so much for that, that reading. That's just confusing. Why in the world would you do that? We'll talk about that in a minute. Donald Smarto was a student studying in a Roman Catholic seminary for the priesthood. And while he was in seminary, he undertook the part in a religious play of a, of a cardinal, not the bird, but the, the Catholic cardinal. As part of this role, the seminary uh, where he was studying arranged to use the actual robes of a, of a local cardinal. And as Smarto uh, looked at these robes for the first time and touched them, he was fascinated. He was intrigued. By the time he got to wear them in dress rehearsal, he was more than fascinated. And by the time the play rolled around, he became obsessed. 
This is what Smarto writes in his autobiography about that occasion. Though each evening the play began around 8 o'clock, I found myself putting the Cardinals robes on earlier and earlier. At the last days of the performance, I was dressing by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, five hours before the beginning of the play. I would strut back and forth in front of a full-length mirror, and I liked what I saw. I had a sense that I was holy, not because I was imitating my superiors. I didn't think I was a sinner. I felt confident that my works were pleasing to God. Not long after that play ended, Smarto's self-confidence was completely shattered. It happened as he attended a movie. He wanted to go to a movie about life in Rome. And in that movie, there was a satiric scene about nuns and priests that lived in Rome during the day. It really captivated his attention. Here's how he describes the priests that appeared in that scene. They were wearing garish garments lit by flashing neon tubing. Then a bishop came on, dressed in beautiful vestment dotted with sparkling gems. He walked out slowly from behind the curtain. As he walked, however, a, a large gust of wind ripped open his vestment, revealing a rotted skeleton underneath. In an instant, my mind said, that is me, but immediately I blocked out the thought. That's not me, I said. I wanted to push the film's images out of my mind. I kept talking to myself and to God to make myself feel better. Make this feeling go away, I said to God. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not an actor. I am a good person. And I kept thinking of all the good things I did. Yet these thoughts did not bring consolation. I think in one way or another, we all try to dress ourselves up for God, to look a certain way, to make ourselves approachable and acceptable in his sight. But the reality of it is we know what lies underneath our garments. We not know what lies in our hearts. I wonder what might happen today if a gust of the Holy Spirit moved through your house, church, and revealed what's in your heart. What would you see if you were able to see inside my heart? What might I see if I could see inside your heart? Some secret sins, perhaps sapping away your spiritual strength. Maybe some bitter resentment robbing you of joy. Perhaps the things that you think you have coming to in life and now you feel you've been unfairly deprived. Maybe the silent or not so silent curses that you utter when life turns against you. Maybe it's the foolish pleasures dominating your thought life. And even if we wore clothes fit for a priest, we would know that this skeleton underneath was there. We know our old sinful nature. We know that we have no right to stand before a holy God. But the good news is we can stand before God in God's righteousness alone. And so we come to the high priest, the fashion of the tabernacle, and the high priest needs to be dressed in righteous robes. Why all these pains to describe the dress for the high priest? It goes back to his sacred calling. His sacred calling was to go inside the tent, to go through the holy place of the holiest of holy places. And there in the holiest of holy places, in the very presence of God himself, he would represent the people to God. And in that very place, he was required to wear the clothes that God told him to wear. Imagine this man getting dressed, ready to go, getting ready to go into the holiest of holy places. You're watching him get dressed and you step in to his dressing room and he's already clothed in a, a garment. It's called a tunic. It's wide and it goes all the way past his wrist. You can only see his hands. It goes all the way past his ankles. You can only see his feet and you can only see his face. As you watch him dress, he is now going to pull over his head a, a seamless violet purple robe made something, I think, kind of like a poncho hanging down to at least his knees. At the hem of that garment, 
they're alternating. They're pomegranates and bells. Pomegranates and bells. The pomegranates are symbols of fruitfulness. If you've ever cut inside a pomegranate, you understand why. These gold bells, pomegranates, gold bells, pomegranates, gold bells. This guy jingles when he walks. They're integrated together. So whenever the high priest moved, there was something going on. Chapter, verse 36 says this, make a Make a plate of pure gold after after the garment. He's got this garment on, and now he's going to put on a turban. And, and it says, first of all, make a plate of pure gold and then scrape on, it uh, on its uh, seal holy to the Lord. It signifies that when this man enters the throne room, he's qualified to go there and that the people would also be seen as holy to God. Now, there's something you're not going to notice when, when you watch him get dressed because you stepped in too late, but this guy's also well wearing a certain kind of undergarment, under underwear that God has prescribed. It goes from his waist to his thighs. It's to preserve the modesty of the priest. And so that God told them what to wear, what the high priest was supposed to wear, all the way down to his undershorts. And you can get lost in all the details, but you cannot miss the overwhelming significance, a sense of sacredness and a sense of holiness. This is what God required for someone to come into his presence of a holy God. You want to know what's required to come into the presence of a holy God? Holiness all the way down to your underclothes. And the high priest was adorned with this holy majesty. And I wonder what did people think when they looked at him? What do you think when they saw this man walking? What do you think when they saw that inscription, holy to the Lord? What do you think when they heard the jingling of those bells? Well, we don't have to wonder. There's a Second century before Jesus shows up, a, a man writes these words. The appearance of this high priest makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. You would think that you had gone out of this world into another one. I emphatically declare that anyone who sees this spectacle will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words because of the hollowed arrangement of every single detail. Why does God pay so much attention to every detail of this man's clothing? Remember, this man's ministry, his outfit was symbolic of his sacred calling, which was to stand in the presence of the holy God and represent the people before God. In his holy majesty, God needed a holy representative. And that person must have a kind of sense of that holiness and the awe of that moment. Verse 40 says, make tunics and sashes and caps for Aaron's sons, the priests, that will give them dignity and honor. They had to know that this person was a person of dignity and honor. But especially when it comes to the work of the high priest, in this passage it refers to Aaron and he's the high priest. But it's, it's the fact that he's doing work for the atonement of the sins of Israel. Notice verse 38, it says, this will be on Aaron's forehead, this holy to the Lord's seal, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever the gifts may be, whatever gift, whatever offering the Israelites had to be, Aaron had to consecrate it. It said this, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Do you see that Aaron's work is to stand in front of a holy God as a holy representative so that the people's sins can be forgiven. The clothing was related to the job. The high priest enters the holy sanctuary to present to this holy God those sacrifices. And if those sacrifices aren't acceptable, the people are not forgiven. Do not miss that it is always the people standing before God that's at stake whenever the high priest entered the sacred tent. A holy God requires holy sacrifices to be presented by a holy representative. And so there's awe, and they're awestruck, and they're dumbfounded. But think with me for a moment also that when they see this man walking in his robes, they, they know what he is. They know what he's about ready to do. And think about the joy that 
comes, the assurance and the excitement they get when they see the high priest, when they read across his, his forehead, holy to the Lord. If he's holy to the Lord, we get to be holy to the Lord. Imagine a, a, a Hebrew family, their child just learning to read, and it's their child's first experience with the high priest, and they bring him close enough to the high priest, and they say to their little daughter, can you read the words that are written on his forehead? And she utters holy to the Lord. Can you imagine the joy and the excitement that their little girl knows? This holy representative will be accepted before a holy God and our sins will be forgiven. What an amazing thing. Now, in order to appreciate this, I need us to all be on the same page and I need you to understand how dangerous this was. The job of the high priest was the most dangerous job in all of Israel. God is supreme in his holiness and he's invited one man once a year, one day a year to come into his holy presence. And this person's life is in jeopardy whenever he comes into the presence of God. I think that's why those, those little bells jingle. I think some people say it jingles because as they as he walks into the Holy of Holies, and Pastor Roldridge did such an amazing job explaining, you know, pushing those curtains aside, head down, and his bells are jingling. It's to maybe is it to remind God that, hey, the one that's about to enter, you've invited him and he's welcoming your presence. It was needed for the saving of this man's life. Look at verse 35 with me again. He's to do this, he's to wear these bells when he enters and when he comes out, so that he will not die. This is a life and death job. Some people don't think the bells were for the awakening of God. Some people think it's for the people on the outside of the curtain so that whenever they heard the bells jingle, they knew that the high priest was still alive. Whenever they heard the bells jingle, they knew that he was doing his work. Whenever they heard the bells jingle, they knew that his work was being accepted and their sins were being forgiven. But we know this was a matter of life and death. Notice with me, if you would, it's weird to talk about underwear, but notice with me, verse 42, it says this, make the linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. My friends, this is not an idle warning. We know that two of Aaron's sons go into the holy place and they offer unholy worship to God and they die on the spot. This is a life and death matter for them, but this is a life and death matter for us. Will God accept me or will he reject me? Will he accept us or will he reject us? Will he welcome us into his holy presence with hope of everlasting joy and life or will he turn us aside and condemn us in his righteousness? That question will be answered once and for all, for all of us on the day of judgment when God renders his final verdict on every single human being. And so I think it would do us well to consider what it means to be prepared for that day. To use the language of today's text, what does it mean to be dressed for the day of judgment? I imagine all of you have had the experience at some time where you seriously considered what you were going to wear. It's homecoming season where we live and there are lots of students considering what am I going to wear to homecoming? Later on in the year it'll be prom season. You're going to consider what you're going to wear to the prom. Think about your wedding day. You considered what it was going to be like, what the dress was going to be like, what all the colors were going to be, how the groomsmen were going to be dressed, how the bride would be dressed, how the groom himself would be dressed. You think about it, what you're going to wear on that first day. Sometimes you even think about what am I going to wear for my anniversary when we go out to dinner? And so we need to think seriously about what clothing is required for us to enter into the holy presence of God. The scripture says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that leaves me feeling helpless. How then can I be saved? How then will I be welcomed and not turned away? How can someone like me, how can God accept me? I want to invite you to find in your Bibles the book of Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament. Zechariah is one of the prophets. And 
Zechariah tells us a story in, one of, in chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3, and I, I want to try to connect this story in Zechariah chapter 3 to the fashion of the tabernacle and to the person of Jesus. This is a very strange story, and it comes in terms of Zechariah's having a dream. Zechariah 3.1 says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Verse 3, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And Zechariah sees this in his dream, and he's like, this is bad. This is bad. There's the high priest whose robes are supposed to be clean, whose robes are supposed to be sparkling. Here's the high priest standing in front of God with filthy clothes. I need you to think with me for a moment about that word filthy. You see, Zechariah knows that the only day that the high priest stands before the Lord is one day a year on the Day of Atonement and that he can't come with dirty clothes, but he doesn't just say dirty clothes, he says filthy clothes. The filthy clothes, most Hebrew scholars will tell us, is a, it's a vulgar word, word. It's a word reserved specifically for human excrement. We have a couple of words in the English language that we could use, right? But you won't want your preacher to use those in a sermon and you don't want them to appear in your Bible. But this is the language the Bible uses to describe our sin. You're like, Tim, that's a bit extreme. Is it really when it's compared to God's holiness? And he says, in this vision, what I need you to see is I need you to put yourself in this vision. You see, here's what happens when it comes to our sin. Most of us say sin, looking at sin, it's a bit extreme. And we have our own strategy to minimize our sin, don't we? Our strategies differ, but we all have them. Maybe your strategy is to compare yourself with others. I'm bad, but I'm better than fill in the blank. Some of us just excuse our sin. We, oh, there are extenuating circumstances in my case that made me do that. No, I don't let you off the hook. Some of us blame others. If you hadn't said what you said or done what you've done, I never would have said or done what I did. And then some of us were just kind of like the farmer who's used to working in the pig stall. Worked there so long, he doesn't even notice anymore how, stench, how, how much it stinks. But here, a man in the presence of God, standing next to the holy God, his robes are filthy. Watch your sin. Let me say, my sin's not so bad. Well, for some of you, maybe your sin is spiritual pride. Pride in the accomplishment that you know how to study God's word. Pride in the study that you know what worship is, that you know right doctrine. How does that look to a holy God, that spiritual pride? Maybe it's worrying. Like worrying, that's not a sin. The Bible says, be anxious about nothing. We let ourselves off the hook. Maybe it's our self-indulgence, our self-advancement, our self-pity. They're all wretched before God. And this high priest, his robes are filled and covered with human excrement. Do not miss this. This is the man who is perceived by the community in the wilderness to be the holiest man on all the earth. And God says his robes are nothing but filthy. filthy. And so Zechariah the prophet hears that and he's like, this is bad. But Zechariah doesn't stop there. He's like, this is really bad. Because that verse 1 says, there's Joshua the high priest standing in filthy robes and Satan is standing beside him to accuse him. Satan's standing beside him to accuse them. And you know why it's really bad? Because Satan's right. Satan's got a case. Joshua can't get by with, he's wrong. And so you read this and you look at that and Satan's got a case and this is really bad because this guy doesn't have any hope. He's a dead man. But not only is this really bad, this is really, really bad in Zechariah's eyes because if the high priest is a dead man, I'm a dead man too. Because I need him to be holy 
so that he can offer a holy sacrifice so that my sins can be forgiven. I need us to look at this and I need us to see that our sin is filthy. In our humanity, we're lost in our sin and our condition as dying sinners is we don't have hope apart from the work of Jesus Christ. And I need you to answer this question. Have you ever come to the part where you agree with the scripture that all have sinned and all sin, even if you think your sin isn't as bad as somebody else's, leads you, leaves you in a filthy condition with filthy robes before a holy God? So Tim, what am I supposed to do? Well, I have good news for you. The story in Zechariah continues. Look at this story. God does not destroy him, but demonstrates his love by replacing his filthy robes with robes of righteousness. Look at verse 4 of Zechariah 3. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Now, I think in that moment, the high priest begins to tremble. Because you remember, there were, what does God require? Holiness down to your underwear. Make sure you're wearing the underwear because you don't want to appear before God naked. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it sound like back in the garden when the man and the woman sinned and they went and hid themselves and they were naked and ashamed and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and God says, no, that won't do. And so I think Zachariah, Joshua the high priest is here and he's, he's trembling. But then look what the angel says to Joshua. See, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you, my friend. That is the gospel. The blessed exchange, my filthy robes of sin, exchange for God's robes of righteousness through what Jesus Christ had done. I don't see it in Zechariah the prophet, but I think as much as there was trembling, there's now rejoicing. And it's rejoicing that Isaiah the prophet speaks of in Isaiah chapter 61 when he says this, my soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. What an amazing time of rejoicing. The fear, the trembling turned away. This is the gospel, my friends. But then the dream, I think, gets really weird. Like, it's not weird enough. Now, all of a sudden, verse 5, Zechariah speaks in the dream. Look at verse 5 with me. He says this, Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. My friends, this is not a fashion statement. Zechariah is concerned about the turban because do you remember what's the inscription of the turban? Holy to the Lord. Zechariah's like, I see the clean robes, but I need to know that God now recognizes this man as holy again because he's going to go and he's going to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of my sins. My friend, this is the picture of salvation we have in Jesus Christ, sin forgiven, clothed in his righteousness. Everything we see about the high priest clothing in, in the wilderness in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, everything we see about the high priest robes and in the prophets, in all of the scripture, it points us to the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8 of Zechariah chapter 3. It says this, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant the branch. A not so subtle reference to Jesus. Notice the stone that I have set before Joshua. On that stone are seven eyes. I will grave Engrave on it an inscription. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. No longer will there need to be a high priest who offers um, sacrifices one day a year. Now there's coming a time when Jesus is going to come, the branch, and he's going to offer sacrifices once for all. And one day I'll take away the sin of the earth. Think with me for a moment about Jesus. Four accounts of his life in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's account predicts the picture of Jesus on the cross. And he's hanging on the cross. There are some soldiers gambling for his garments. 
John gives us two very specific details, and I want you to see them. One, as he says, it's a seamless one-piece garment woven from top to bottom. That's the robe. He also says that it's purple. Why this detail? Because he wants us to understand that Jesus on the cross was accomplishing the high priestly ministry, and he was even wearing similar garments to let us know that a holy God requires holy sacrifice from a holy representative, and Jesus is our holiness. He's holy to the Lord. He's holy. He's blameless. He's pure. He's separated from every other sinner, from, from every sinner. He himself was not a sinner. Jesus is our holiness, and he actually fulfills the priestly ministry by speaking. He speaks to the Father on our behalf. Remember in, in Zechariah, Satan standing by Joshua the high priest to accuse him before God. And Satan stands before God wanting to accuse you and you accuse me. But let's look what happens in, in Joshua and Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched, a stick snatched from the fire? And that is exactly what happens. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He takes our place and says, yes, they're sinners, but I have saved them. I have recovered them. And it comes to this point in life where we have to accept what Jesus did on the cross. No longer do I have the need to cover up or pretend that I'm better than I am. I have forgiveness through Jesus, and he will clothe me in his righteousness. Donald Smarto went back from that movie theater in great distress of soul. He ran out into the Missouri countryside crying out for God to give him some assurance of his salvation. As he walked in the countryside, it was dark. The clouds covered the moon and he realized that he was lost in darkness and he cried out in the darkness, tell me God that I am doing what the right thing. Tell me that I am doing what is pleasing to you. Speak to me clearly. Alone in the darkness, he heard a humming sound and he began to walk towards it with his arms outstretched. And all of a sudden he comes and he touches a piece of wood he touches that piece of wood, he recognizes that it's a telephone pole, and that humming that was coming from the sound was coming from the wires overhead. As he stood there with his hand against the pole, the clouds parted and left the front of the moon, and he saw against the moon silhouetted across this pole with its crossbar. As he stood there staring at the cross, God did a work of grace in his life. And he came to understand more fully the plan of salvation. This is what Smarter writes. Now I knew, I really knew, Christ had died for me, this was coupled with the revelation that I was a sinner. I was not the good person I thought I was the moment before. And all at once, I embraced the telephone pole and began to weep. I hugged that piece of wood for nearly an hour, and I imagined Jesus nailed to this pole, blood dripping down from his wounds, cleansing me of my sin and my unworthiness. If we're honest, I would say I'm not the good person I'd like to think that I am. How about you? There's hope for people like us. His name is Jesus. We have a high priest. And we need to be open and honest to the real extent of our sin and understand that we need the one who across his forehead says, I will make you holy to the Lord. And we celebrate this and we live on that hope. I was going to end the teaching there, but as I continue to read Zechariah, I couldn't get away from this. Look at verses 9 and following with me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's what we've talked about. Jesus did that when he died on the cross, when we recognize our need for forgiveness. But look at verse 10. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit with you peacefully under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take away the sin, and now you go invite your neighbor because he's struggling, she's struggling with the same thing you are. How, am I, how can I ever be presented wholly in the sight of God. It seems to me this story boils down to six words. We trust the Lord. 
and we do good. We trust the Lord for what Jesus did on the cross, that we are dressed in his righteousness and his righteousness alone. Let me end with you this way. Pray in this prayer of blessing. It's Psalm 132, 9. And this is where I want your discussion to begin in your house, church. Psalm 132.9 says, May your priests be clothed with righteousness and may your faithful people shout for joy. Would you share with one another whether or not you've ever accepted Jesus' holy work on the cross for your righteousness, not trusting in your own righteousness, but only his. And may you shout joyful songs of praise. Start there. Almighty God, we thank you so much that we don't have to pretend or cover up that if we'll be open and honest and admit our sin, that you sent a holy representative, Jesus Christ, your son, to offer a holy sacrifice, the only one that would be accepted by you so that our sins can be forgiven and so that we can live rejoicing, not in fear, awaiting that day of judgment, but knowing that you will accept us. Father, may your Spirit, bless the discussions that take place and the things that the Holy Spirit's doing in hearts right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.